Chapter Five of the Amateur Immigrant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Amateur Immigrant, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Five: The Sick Man. One night, Jones, the young O'Reilly, and myself were walking arm in arm and briskly up and down the deck. Six bells had rung. A head wind blew chill and fitful. The fog was closing in with a sprinkle of rain and the fog-whistle had been turned on, and now divided time with its unwelcome outcries, loud like a bull, thrilling and intense like a mosquito. Even the watch lay somewhere snugly out of sight. For some time we observed something lying black and huddled in the scuppers, which at last heaved a little and moaned aloud. We ran to the rails. An elderly man, but whether passenger or seaman it was impossible in the darkness to determine, lay grovelling on his belly in the wet scuppers, and kicking feebly with his outspread toes. We asked him what was amiss, and he replied incoherently, with a strange accent, and in a voice unmanned by terror, that he had cramp in the stomach, that he had been ailing all day, had seen the doctor twice, and had walked the deck against fatigue until he was overmastered, and had fallen where we found him. Jones remained by his side, while O'Reilly and I hurried off to seek the doctor. We knocked in vain at the doctor's cabin. There came no reply, nor could we find any one to guide us. It was no time for delicacy, so we ran once more forward, and I, whipping up a ladder and touching my hat to the officer on the watch, addressed him as politely as I could. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but there's a man lying with bad cramp in the lee scuppers, and I can't find the doctor.' He looked at me peeringly in the darkness, and then, somewhat harshly, "'Well, I can't leave the bridge, my man,' said he. "'No, sir, but you can tell me what to do,' I returned. "'Is it one of the crew?' he asked. "'I believe him to be a fireman,' I replied.' I dare say officers are much annoyed by complaints and alarmist information from their freight of human creatures. But certainly, whether it was the idea that the sick man was one of the crew, or from something conciliatory in my address, the officer in question was immediately relieved and mollified, and, speaking in a voice much freer from constraint, advised me to find a steward and dispatch him in quest of the doctor, who would now be in the smoking-room over his pipe. One of the stewards was often enough to be found about this hour down our companion, steerage number two and three. That was his smoking-room of a night. Let me call him Blackwood. O'Reilly and I rattled down the companion, breathing hurry, and in his shirt-sleeves and perched across the carpenter's bench upon one thigh, found Blackwood, a neat, bright, dapper, Glasgow-looking man, with a bead of an eye and a rank twang in his speech. I forget who was with him, but the pair were enjoying a deliberate talk over their pipes. I dare say he was tired with his day's work, and eminently comfortable at that moment, and the truth is I did not stop to consider his feelings, but told my story in a breath. Steward, said I, there's a man lying bad with cramp, and I can't find the doctor. He turned upon me as pert as a sparrow, but with a black look that is the prerogative of man, and taking his pipe out of his mouth, "'That's none of my business,' said he. "'I don't care.' 
I could have strangled the little ruffian where he sat. The thought of his cabin civility and cabin tips filled me with indignation. I glanced at O'Reilly. He was pale and quivering, and looked like a sultan battery every inch of him. But we had a better card than violence. "'You will have to make it your business,' said I, "'for I am sent to you by the officer on the bridge.' Blackwood was fairly tripped. He made no answer, but put out his pipe, gave me one murderous look, and set off upon his errand strolling. From that day forward, I should say, he improved to me in courtesy, as though he had repented his evil speech, and were anxious to leave a better impression. When we got on deck again, Jones was still beside the sick man, and two or three late stragglers had gathered round, and were offering suggestions. One proposed to give the patient water, which was promptly negatived. Another bade us hold him up. He himself prayed to be let lie. But as it was at least as well to keep him off the streaming decks, O'Reilly and I supported him between us. It was only by main force that we did so, and neither an easy or an agreeable duty, for he fought in his paroxysms like a frightened child, and moaned miserably when he resigned himself to our control. "'Oh, let me lie,' he pleaded. "'I'll no get better anyway.' And then, with a moan that went to my heart, Oh, why did I come on this miserable journey? I was reminded of the song which I had heard a little while before in the close tossing steerage. Oh, why left I my ham? Meantime, Jones, relieved of his immediate charge, had gone off to the galley, where we could see a light. There he found a belated cook scouring the pans by the radiance of two lanterns, and one of these he sought to borrow. The scullion was backward. Was it one of the crew, he asked, and when Jones, smitten with my theory, had assured him that it was a fireman, he reluctantly left his scouring and came towards us at an easy pace, with one of the lanterns swinging from his finger. The light, as it reached the spot, showed us an elderly man, thick-set and grizzled with years, but the shifting coarse shadows concealed from us the expression and even the design of his face. So soon as the cook set eyes on him, he gave a sort of a whistle. "'It's only a passenger,' said he, and turning about, made lantern and oar for the galley. "'He's a man, anyway,' cried Jones in indignation. "'Nobody said he was a woman,' said a gruff voice, which I recognised for that of the boatswain. All this while there was no word of backward or the doctor, and now the officer came to our side of the ship and asked over the hurricane-deck rails if the doctor were not yet come. We told him not. No, we repeated with a breathing of anger, and we saw him hurry aft in person. Ten minutes after the doctor made his appearance deliberately enough and examined our patient with the lantern. He made little of the case, had the man brought after the dispensary, dosed him, and sent him forward to his bunk. Two of his neighbours in the steerage had now come to our assistance, expressing loud sorrow that such a fine cheery body should be sick, and these claiming a sort of possession took him entirely under their own care. The drug had probably relieved him, for he struggled no more, and was led along plaintive and patient, but protesting. 
His heart recoiled at the thought of steerage. "'Oh, let me lie down upon the beardy side,' he cried. "'Or dinner take me down.' And again, "'Oh, why did I ever come upon this miserable voyage?' And yet once more, with a gasp and a wailing prolongation of the fourth word, "'I had no call to come.' But there he was, and by the doctor's orders, and the kind force of his two shipmates, disappeared down the companion of steerage number one into the den allotted him. At the foot of our own companion, just where I found Blackwood, Jones and the boatswain were now engaged in talk. The last was a gruff, cruel-looking seaman, who must have passed near half a century upon the seas. Square-headed, goat-bearded, with heavy blond eyebrows, and an eye without radiance, inflexibly steady and hard. I had not forgotten his rough speech, but I remembered also that he had helped us about the lantern, and now seeing him in conversation with Jones, and being choked with indignation, I proceeded to blow off my steam. "'Well,' said I, "'I make you my compliments upon your steward,' and furiously narrated what had happened. "'I've nothing to do with him,' replied the boatswain. "'They're all alike.' They wouldn't mind if they saw you all lying dead, one upon the top of another. This was enough. A very little humanity went a long way with me after the experience of the evening. A sympathy grew up at once between the boatswain and myself, and that night, and during the next few days, I learnt to appreciate him better. He was a remarkable type, and not at all the kind of man you find in books. He had been at Sebastopol under English colours, and again in a state ship, after the Alabama, and praying God we shouldn't find her. He was a high Tory and a high Englishman. No manufacturer would have held opinions more hostile to the working man and his strikes. The workmen, he said, think nothing of their country. They think of nothing but themselves. They're damned greedy, selfish fellows. He would not hear of the decadence of England. I say they send us beef from America, he argued, but who pays for it? All the money in the world's in England. The Royal Navy was the best of possible services, according to him. Anyway, the officers are gentlemen, said he, and you can't get hazed to death by a damned non-commissioned, as you can in the army. Among nations, England was the first, then came France. He respected the French Navy and liked the French people and if he were forced to make a new choice in life, by God, he would try Frenchman. For all his looks and rough cold manners, I observed that children were never frightened by him. They divine him at once to be a friend, and one night when he had chalked his hand and clothes, it was incongruous to hear this formidable old salt chuckling over his boyish monkey trick. In the morning my first thought was of the sick man, I was afraid I should not recognise him, baffling had been the light of the lantern, and found myself unable to decide if he were Scots, English, or Irish. He had certainly employed North Country words and elisions, but the accent and the pronunciation seemed unfamiliar and incongruous in my ear. To descend on an empty stomach into steerage number one was an adventure that required some nerve. The stench was atrocious. Each respiration tasted in the throat like some horrible kind of cheese, 
and the squalid aspect of the place was aggravated by so many people worming themselves into their clothes in twilight of the bunks. You may guess if I was pleased, and not only for him, but for myself also, when I heard that the sick man was better and had gone on deck. The morning was raw and foggy, though the sun suffused the fog with pink and amber. The foghorn still blew, stertorous and intermittent, and to add to the discomfort, the seamen were just beginning to wash down the decks. But for a sick man this was heaven compared to the steerage. I found him standing on the hot water pipe just forward of the saloon deck-house. He was smaller than I had fancied, and plain-looking, but his face was distinguished by strange and fascinating eyes, limpid grey from a distance, but when looked into full of changing colours and grains of gold. His manners were mild and uncompromisingly plain, and I soon saw that once started he delighted to talk. His accent and language had been formed in the most natural way, since he was born in Ireland, had lived a quarter of a century on the banks of time, and was married to a Scots wife. A fisherman in the season, he had fished the east coast from Fishero to Whitby. When the season was over, and the great boats, which required extra hands, were once again drawn up on the shore till the next spring, he worked as a labourer about chemical furnaces or along the wharves, unloading vessels. In this comparatively humble way of life he had gathered a competence, and could speak of his comfortable house, his hayfield, and his garden. On this ship, when so many accomplished artisans were fleeing from starvation, he was present on a pleasure trip to visit a brother in New York. Ere he started, he informed me, he had been warned against the steerage and the steerage fare, and recommended to bring with him a ham and tea and a spice-loaf. But he laughed to scorn such counsels. I'm not afraid, he told his advisers. I'll get on for ten days. I've not been a fisherman for nothing. For it is no light matter, as he reminded me, to be in an open boat, perhaps waist-deep with herrings, day-breaking with a scale, and for miles on every hand lee-shores, unbroken, iron-bound, surf-beat, with only here and there an anchorage where you dare not lie, or a harbour impossible to enter with the wind that blows. The life of a North Sea fisher is one long chapter of exposure and hard work and insufficient fare. And even if he makes land at some bleak fisher-port, perhaps the season is bad or his boat has been unlucky, and after fifty hours' unsleeping vigilance and toil, not a shop will give him a credit for a loaf of a bread. Not a shop will give him credit for a loaf of bread. Yet the steerage of the immigrant ship had been too vile for the endurance of a man thus rudely trained. He had scarce eaten since he came on board, until the day before, when his appetite was tempted by some excellent pea-soup. We were all much of the same mind on board, and, beginning with myself, had dined upon pea-soup not wisely but too well. Only with him the excess had been punished, perhaps because he was weakened by former abstinence, and his first meal had resulted in a cramp. He had determined to live henceforth on biscuit, and when two months later he should return to England to make the passage by saloon. The second cabin, after due inquiry, 
he scouted as another edition of steerage. He spoke apologetically of his emotion when ill. "'You see, I had no call to be here,' said he, "'and I thought it was by with me last night. "'I've a good house at home and plenty to nurse me, "'and I had no real call to leave them.' "'Speaking of the attentions he had received from his shipmates generally, "'they were all so kind,' said he, "'that there's none to mention. "'And, except in so far as I might share in this, "'he troubled me with no reference to my services.' But what affected me in the most lively matter was the wealth of this day-labourer, paying a two-months pleasure visit to the States, and preparing to return in the saloon, and the new testimony rendered by his story, not so much to the horrors of steerage as to the habitual comfort of the working classes. One foggy, frosty December evening, I encountered on Liberton Hill, near Edinburgh, an Irish labourer trudging homeward from the fields. Our roads lay together, and it was natural that we should fall into talk. He was covered with mud, an inoffensive, ignorant creature, who thought the Atlantic cable was the secret contrivance of the masters, the better to oppress labouring mankind. And I will confess I was astonished to learn that he had nearly three hundred pounds in the bank. But this man had travelled over most of the world, and enjoyed wonderful opportunities on some American railroad, with two dollars a shift and double pay on Sunday and at night, whereas my fellow-passenger had never quitted Tyneside, and had made all that he possessed in that same accursed downfalling England, when skilled mechanics, engineers, millwrights and carpenters were fleeing us from the native country of starvation. Fitly enough we slid off on the subject of strikes and wages and hard times. Being from the Tyne, and a man who had gained and lost in his own pocket by these fluctuations, he had much to say, and held strong opinions on the subject. He spoke sharply of the masters, and when I led him on, of the men also. The masters had been selfish and obstructive, the men selfish, silly and light-headed. He rehearsed to me the course of a meeting in which he had been present, and the somewhat long discourse which he had there pronounced, calling into question the wisdom and even the good faith of the Union delegates. And although he had escaped himself through flush times and starvation times with a handsomely provided purse, he had so little faith in either man or master, and so profound a terror for the unerring nemesis of mercantile affairs, that he could think of no hope for our country outside of a sudden and complete political subversion. Down must go lords and church and army, and capital, by some happy direction, must change hands from worse to better, or England stood condemned. Such principles, he said, were growing like a seed. From this mild, soft, domestic man, these words sounded unusually ominous and grave. I had heard enough revolutionary talk among my workmen fellow-passengers, but most of it was hot and turgid, and fell discredited from the lips of unsuccessful men. This man was calm. He had attained prosperity and ease. He disapproved the policy which had been pursued by labour in the past. And yet this was his panacea, to rend the old country from end to end, and from top to bottom, and in clamour and civil discord remodel it with the hand of violence. End of chapter 5